listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? And the second reading comes from John 9, 13 through 25. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened, the man replied. He is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is, he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. Thank you, You're welcome. Oh, church, good morning. I appreciate Max here for so many reasons, one of them being that he preached last week, and I'm coming in fresh. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, no matter how far the sermon is, like it being written by Friday morning, there's a magic window of time for me between 4 and 6.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings where everything comes together. And at 6.30 this morning, Emily had come in. I was sitting in my Sunday morning chair. She came in with her cup of tea, and I just start cackling because I'm like, oh, I'm so excited to preach. This is going to be great fun. I've been, uh, I've been reading a lot more lately, uh, mostly fiction, 
Um, yesterday, I finished the completed works of um, uh, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, a really fun read. I've been reading those mostly at night, but I've largely been on a tear of reading these mid-century dystopian novels uh, for a good time, you know, called John Odom. I know how to have fun. Um, but you probably read some of these in high school, 1984, anybody? Brave New World, Animal Farm, I just read for the first time, another uh, George Orwell um, and then I read for the first time Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. All of these lighthearted, you know, easy <laughs> reads. I had a ball. I had a blast reading these. And what's interesting about each of these books is each book is written as a call to action against authoritarianism, against authoritarian regimes. Uh, Brave New World kind of in its own way. And the books, as I've been thinking about them, have some common themes. I'm, I'm going to identify five common themes that run through these kind of anti-authoritarian dystopian novels. One of those themes is that the overlords, Big Brother, the state, whatever you want to call it, exploits people's fears for the purpose of controlling them. So the very real fears that people have, they are used against you in order to control people. By staying at constant war, the state gives itself wartime powers to increasingly control the populace. In 1984, there's always a fear that Goldstein is going to infiltrate, or whether given you know, the time, if they're at war with East Asia or Eurasia, they're always at war. Uh, in Animal Farm, there's a constant threat of Mr. Jones coming back or of Snowball, you know, doing his devious deeds. In Fahrenheit 451, the great threat is those people who choose to read books. In Brave New World, fear is not the primary tactic that's used to control people, but rather it's pleasure. The people are so inundated with lives of leisure and ease that they're deadened to being concerned about anything that's going on because they're always happy all the time. The first kind of theme is the overlords exploit people's fears in order to control them. A second theme in these um, very cheerful books is the state causes people to disbelieve the things that they see with their eyes and they hear with their ears and accept the version of reality as told by the state. So even if all of their life experience has told them to believe X, if the state says Y, they will believe Y unreflectively, surrendering their minds to the control of the state. A third theme, the first being the, the state exploiting people's fears to control them, the second being the state making people disbelieve their own eyes and ears. A third is the herd instinct of everybody's got to obey the state or the worst is going to happen makes rebellion extremely difficult. If everyone is panicked, they're so afraid, look, they will even tell on their friends even if those friends are actually acting in their interests. The, the chronic anxiety stirs up this herd mentality that makes rebellion exceptionally difficult. A fourth thing that, as I read it, felt like more and more true of our world is the centrality and the obsession with technology, and especially over against the natural world. The, the, the state makes tech front and center in everyone's lives and uses it as a way to control people. And then the fifth thing I would say is the state limits people's access to things that help them remember the past. The state limits access to things that help people remember the past, especially a past that was not controlled by the state. They're rewriting history. 
Now, while we may or may not see the, the hard political authoritarianism that Huxley and Orwell and Bradbury were writing against, I would contend that we are nonetheless being subjected to a soft authoritarianism on both sides of the political spectrum. There are partisan leaders who are stoking up our fears against the others, and if the others get in control, ev- in control everything's going to hell. They're, they're using our fears to put us into warring factions, always uh, full of hatred and vitriol for the other, distorting our understanding of reality, leveraging technology to do that, and they're making us susceptible to being controlled by those who do not have our best interests at heart. I would advise you to be very cautious, to be leery of those people who toy with our fears or who stoke your fears. Those who toy with our fears, who are always keeping our attention on the enemy, are often using misdirection to gain control over us. And if it's not to gain control, I will tell you, there are a lot of people profiting off of our collective panic. And there's a value in reading stories like this because they teach us to see and to perceive and to resist tactics that people who don't have our best interests at heart are using to exploit us. And here's the message that I'm so excited to get to share with you this morning from the Scriptures. The Scriptures teach us that there is only one that we are meant to fear. And when we rightly fear this one, it puts all of our fears, our other fears, our lesser fears, in their proper place. So, 1 Samuel. The, the passage is best known for something that happens at the tail end of this passage. Uh, Samuel has been sent by God to the family of Jesse to anoint the youngest David to be king over Israel. Um, I studied this uh, with, with Max and Nina, and we were chuckling about how the, the, one of the most famous lines from the chapter is, man looks at outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And uh, they meet the first son of David, and he's tall and good-looking, but God says, nope, God looks at the heart. And here's the next one, tall and good-looking, nope, God looks at the heart. And then finally, here's David, who you expect to be kind of a homely-looking dude, based on this story so far, and goes, no, he's good-looking too, but God likes his heart. (laughs) Now, here's what I love about the passage, not the thing that is like the main theme of the passage. Uh, Samuel is sent to this town, and when he arrives, the people who've been around the block have a very strong reaction to his presence. The Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn over Saul? I've rejected him as king. Fill your horn with oil. Get ready to anoint another. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons. Samuel knows under the current regime, this is going to be a, a, you know, inflammatory move. How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. And God says, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said, and when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders trembled. The young men, the young women may not know much about this dude, but the elders, those who have been around, know the story of Samuel, know this is the child priest, the child prophet. God was speaking to him while he was serving underneath the priest, Eli, the high priest. God displaced Eli and his wicked sons to speak and to uh, to work through this child priest. God had set apart Samuel to be the kingmaker. He's the one who first anointed Saul, and now he's displacing Saul and making David the king. 
when he comes into the village. The people know this is a man who bears the very words of God, and the people, the elders, they tremble. Kind of gives me the chills. In John's gospel, we have the reaction of another group of elders. Jesus comes on the scene and he heals this man who was born blind from birth. He does, it, he does this healing in his own, like, very Jesus way. He makes some mud, he puts it on the guy's eyes, kind of a sacramental thing, and then Jesus just bolts, says, oh yeah, by the way, go wash and you'll be able to see. And Jesus is gone before he can even get credit for the miracle. He does this miracle on the Sabbath, which, is in, which is, uh, enrages the religious elders, the Pharisees. They hear what Jesus has done, and they want to throw him on trial then and there. Not only do they not tremble in the presence of one who did a miracle like this, they defy him, they deny him, they say that Jesus is a sinner, and for believing in the man who caused him to see, they say to this man, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? Such a very opposite vision when the word of the Lord, present to the person of Jesus Christ, comes to the people. They do not tremble. They defy him. They disrespect him. Such very different reactions. In the story, the blind man is the one who can see, and the religious elite are those who turn out to be blind. Jesus, in a couple of weeks, will ride into the city of Jerusalem on the day we call Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, that he's riding on a donkey, fulfilling the vision of Zechariah. The people are cheering him and lauding him as king, and Jesus, seeing the glory of the temple and seeing how mis misguided some of the people are, weeps over the city, and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you knew the things that would make for peace, but it is hidden from you. Instead, one stone is not going to be left standing on top of another. The people want to make their own way for peace. They're afraid of the Romans. They're afraid of the Pharisees. They're afraid of, you know, their own version of religious purity, but they do not rightly fear and tremble before the one who created all things. Jesus says, you fail to perceive God's visitation to you. To tremble is the right response to the word of the Lord. When I say to tremble, I mean to hold in reverence and to treasure the Lord in everything that he says to us. To tremble is to embody the right kind of fear that the Proverbs tell us is the beginning of the pathway to wisdom. Proverbs 28, 14, Blessed is the one who always, say with me, trembles before God. And then explaining by an opposite what trembling means, but whoever hardens their heart falls into trouble. The prophet Isaiah, these are the ones I will look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. The prophet Jeremiah, hear this, you foolish people who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Should you not fear me, declares the Lord? Should you not tremble in my presence? But these people, these people, they have stubborn and rebellious hearts. They have turned aside and gone away. When I look at the Old Testament, I see how God always preserves a remnant of people who tremble at his word. You perhaps know the story in 2 Kings of Josiah, who was made king over Judah when he's eight years old. His father did not observe the ways of King David and fear the Lord with all of his heart. And he, he deprived from the people the book of the law. Eighteen years into his reign, something momentous happens in the life of Josiah. 
Shaphan, the, the, the secretary, had been sent to the temple of the Lord, and Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. Can you imagine never having read or had access to our Bibles and someone says, I found the sacred writings of our people. He gave it to Shaphan who read it and then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes And he gave these orders, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all of Judah about what is written in the book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They've not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. Hilkiah the priest went to speak to the prophet Huldah. Another sermon for another time, but appreciate the weight of these words. The prophet Huldah She lived in Jerusalem. You hear me? She said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Tell the man who sent you to me, this is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people according to everything written in the book the king of Judah has read. You tell the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Because your heart was responsive, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I've spoken, and because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have also heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors, and you will be buried in peace. When Josiah the king heard the word of the Lord, he trembled. He tore his robes and he humbled himself. And then he had a call to action. 2 Kings 23, the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went from the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, all the people from the least to the greatest, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord, and all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. There was a king who trembled. I think of Ezra returning from exile to find that those who had been left behind in Jerusalem had intermarried with the other nations. This was not primarily an issue of ethnicity, but idolatry. The people of Israel and Judah had made the gods of the nations their own gods, and they left in their own land idols. And as a result of it, they were sent into exile. And now, returning from exile, they found that their people have intermarried again and brought in the gods of the nations into the people of God. When Ezra heard this, he says, I tore my tunic and cloak, I pulled hair from my head and beard, and I sat down appalled. Everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me. At the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn, and I fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God. And I prayed, Lord, I'm too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. 
Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword in captivity to pillage and humiliation at the hands of foreign kings as it is today. I realize now what has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt, and yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Ezra hears the words of the Lord. He sees the disparity with the people of God, and he trembles at God's words. I think of Daniel living in Babylon in exile, and there was, an, there was a decree issued that no one for a period of time could pray to any god but the king of the Babylonians. And when Daniel heard that the decree had been published, what did he do? He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem, and three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Did he tremble in kneeling for fear of what Nebuchadnezzar could do to him? Perhaps, but he trembled all the more at his God. In the same book, I think of the story of the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are commanded to kneel before the, the golden image of the king, and when they refuse to do so, they're called to account. The boys say to the king, King, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Look, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hands. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods. We will not worship the image of gold that you set up. Tell you the truth, we don't even need to defend ourselves against you. I actually think that's a, that said with humility in the right spirit, it's actually a, a pretty great inner posture when we find ourselves ideologically out of line with people who don't fear God. On the one hand, I agree with Peter. We need to be prepared at all times to give an answer to explain the hope that we have. At the same time, we, we can explain ourselves, but we don't need to feel the need to defend ourselves. For us, it must be enough for us uh, to obey because we tremble at his word. I think of the story of Mordecai, which I can't go into at length in, in the book of Esther, who would not bow his knee before the wicked ruler Haman. And so many stories like this in the scriptures of those who fear the Lord more than they fear the social consequences of social deviancy. There are remnants like this that can be found all through the scriptures and in every generation, little Pockets of people who still tremble at God's word, who still know that the fear of the Lord, reverence for the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, who don't bow the knee to the gods of the people even when it costs them something. Now, I've said it before, and I'm going to say it slightly differently this morning, that I think that in this next season of life in our context in the West, that there are four churches of the future. One of those I would call the nationalist church. And it's those Christians who the thing that really makes them tremble is the thought of not taking back our country. They're fixated on political victories. They think that what God is really after is retaking the nation, the one nation. Makes me think of this profound moment in Joshua chapter 5. Joshua was near Jericho. He looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua, the successor of Moses, Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for your enemies, for our enemies? And the angel of the Lord says, Neither. 
As commander of the army of the Lord, I've now come. And Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence. Nonetheless, there's the nationalist church, those Christians fixated on political victories who think, surely we must take back the nation. Being another emerging church in our context is what I would just simply call the humanist church. It's Christians who are trying to conform the church to humanist or to modernistic visions of justice that are not anchored in God's revelation to us in the Scriptures. Reminds me of 2 Timothy 4. The time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. The Nationalist Church, the Humanist Church, or finally what I'll vaguely call the Therapeutic Church. The Therapeutic Church is those Christians who are trying to tack on Jesus and religion and church to appeal to the modern preferences of religious consumers. It's like Jesus is like your butler. Jesus is like your therapist. He's here just to make you feel better while you navigate life on your own and call the shots for your life. The Nationalist Church, the Humanist Church, the Therapeutic Church. What I want to contend for today, and in its own way the Scriptures contend for, is the trembling church who reveres and delights in God's Word as we understand it, who strives to build their life together on the firm foundation of His precepts, who, like Josiah, cooperates with the Spirit to remove idols from their own lands and their own homes and their own hearts, who, with Jesus, tends the soil of their own hearts, removing the stones and the thorns and being watchful of the enemy that would come and steal away the Word. Neither combative nor reclusive, seeking the flourishing of others in quiet and godly lives in all holiness, and patiently awaiting the day of the Lord's appearing. A trembling remnant like this probably does not frequently look all that victorious, does not look all that glorious or triumphant. It might look a lot like limping toward the finish line. But God holds precious promises for such a community. The prophet Micah. In that day declares the Lord, I will gather the lame I will assemble the exiles, those I've brought to grief. I will make my lame, the lame, my remnant, those who are limping toward the finish line as faithfully as they can. Those who've been driven away by a strong nation, the Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. Are you ready for this? The prophet Zephaniah. Zeph never gets his day to be heard in the church. Zephaniah, I will leave within you the meek and the humble, the remnant of Israel who trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. A promise God gives to the remnant who still trembles from the prophet Zechariah. In that day, the seed will grow well after so many years of being in want. After so many years of wandering and wandering, finally the seed will grow well. The vine will yield its fruit. The ground will produce its crops and the heavens will drop their dew. 
I will give all these things as an inheritance to the remnant of this people. And just as you, Judah and Israel, have been despised among the nations, so I will save you and you will be a blessing. Do not be afraid, but let your hands be strong. This makes me think of my favorite poem by my favorite author. Tolkien wrote it in defense of storytelling to Lewis, in defense of myth-making. The poem is called Mythopoeia. And in the middle of this poem, Tolkien says, Blessed are the timid hearts that evil hate, that quail in its shadow and yet shut the gate, that seek no parley and in guarded room, though small and bare upon a clumsy loom, read tissues, stories, gilded by the far-off day, hoped and believed in under shadow's sway. Blessed are the men of Noah's race that build their little arks, though frail and poorly filled, and steer through winds contrary toward a wraith, the going into the pain and the danger of the unknown, making their way toward a rumor of a harbor guessed by faith. He says, I bow not yet before the iron crown, the powers of evil, nor cast my own small golden scepter down. Blessed are those who quietly resist, who though timidly defy the powers that be, who in their own small and perhaps clumsy way wield their authority to submit themselves to God's. Though they may be a small remnant, a mere garden of remembering in the industrial wasteland of Babylon, they still tremble at the word of the Lord. For such people, there's a hope and a future. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. Through the darkest valley, he will lead. I want to ask you, what are you afraid of? What is that deep fear in you that you've allowed to fester? And at times, our enemy exploits to work against your interests. What are you afraid of? Let me ask you this, too. Who and what are you allowing, inviting to shepherd you through your fears? What are you fearing way too much? What are you fearing not nearly enough? When was the last time? Now, maybe, maybe you're not an emotional person like, you know, some of us. But when was the last time the Lord gripped your heart when you, when you were reading the Scriptures? Like John Wesley had this profound moment of conversion when he was reading a commentary about Romans, and he said his heart strangely burned. Or like the disciples who were in the presence of Jesus, though they didn't know they were with him on, on, on the road to Emmaus, and beginning with Moses... And the prophets, he began to explain how the Messiah had to suffer. And after Jesus had gone from them, they said, did our hearts not strangely burn as he opened the scriptures to us? When was the last time you trembled at his word? Or has your heart grown hard? Has the soil of your heart become resistant? Have you been inoculated against the glory of the gospel? What's contributed to that? 
Jesus talks about the parable of the sower. Sometimes the, sneeze, the seed is snatched up by the enemy. Sometimes it's choked out by thorns, which he says, the deceptiveness of wealth and the worries of this life and the desire for other things. That's the thorns. Sometimes people respond with joy, but they got so many stones in their soil that the roots can't go down deep. What's contributed to your lack of responsiveness to the word? Where do you need to repent? And how is God inviting you and God inviting me to resist the forces that oppose the things of God? Let's pray together. Jesus, I, I share, I say all of this in humility. I don't mean to say it from the perspective of, oh, we're the ones who are right, everybody else is wrong. I say these words with fear and trembling to work out my own salvation. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.